السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. If I could please get a sound check إن شاء الله تعالى before we begin. Someone let me know if the sound's okay إن شاء الله. Okay. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So welcome to uh, QP year 4 الحمد لله we are now on a fourth year of Quranic progression and this is our first lesson, so we begin, inshallah ta'ala, year four today. And inshallah, over the next uh, however many months that we have, bithnillah ta'ala, we will continue as we've done for the previous three years with the tafsir of Juz Amma. And we're going to start today with Suratul Layl. I hope that inshallah ta'ala, everyone has kept safe over the summer months that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has protected you and your families, that Allah azza wa jal has made, inshallah ta'ala, things wherever you are easier than when they were, where we left off. Uh, just before Ramadan. Uh, I hope that inshallah ta'ala everyone is doing well. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he continues to keep us safe uh, and our families and our communities that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to continue to seek knowledge and to worship him and to increase in in action and implementing the knowledge that, the knowledge that we have. Uh, we have. Uh, just a couple of announcements before I forget. Uh, first of all, um, the exams for those of you that took them Jazakumullah uh, khair. I appreciate the time and the effort that that takes. Uh, and I also want to uh, just shout out towards the, or make a shout out towards the uh, excellent transcribing team as well as the revision team uh, and the sisters who put together the notes as well as the sisters who con- conducted the revision sessions. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them abundantly. It is something which uh, takes, as you can imagine, a lot of time and effort and diligence and dedication in order to be able to not only put together notes, but then put together the revision notes and put together the, uh, you know, the exams and, and go through that whole process. Uh, that it's not something which is easy. And so for the people who step up and do that kind of work for us and help us all in terms of our revision and just kind of getting us back into the flow over the last couple of weeks before we actually begin with the new year, uh, that's something which is an important thing. And so I'll ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he rewards them. And I also ask Allah Azza wa Jalla that rewards you for taking the exam for those of you that took the exam. For those of you that haven't yet taken the exam, uh, this, uh, I believe this weekend is the final opportunity. So the deferred exam is going to be taken uh, this coming weekend. And so for those of you who for whichever reason were unable to take the previous exam at its original date or the exam at its original date, then inshallah ta'ala you can uh, look at it this weekend. And that will be your final opportunity. And then inshallah ta'ala next week we will speak about it and, and mention uh, the people that had the highest grades and so on. Uh, also, um, as you may probably be aware by now, uh, we're still online this year. So QP, at least for uh, the foreseeable future anyway, uh, is going to continue to be online. Um, so that's going to be the norm going ahead. So, uh, and this primarily probably applies just if you're in Birmingham, anyone outside of Birmingham probably uh, would have joined online anyway. But for those of you that are attending locally or would have attended locally at Hikmah, the, uh, the usual mosque, we're not going to be there yet for the foreseeable future. If anything changes, then obviously, inshallah ta'ala, we will let you know. 
Um, and uh, the third announcement is with regards to the Telegram group. So for those of you that have been following us now for some time, you know that we have a, a couple of uh, groups on Telegram. Uh, one is like an, a broadcast kind of announcement group and the other one is a chat group. Uh, both of those I think are, are extremely beneficial. If for nothing else except that you keep up to date with the latest announcements and the latest developments. And so that's something which I would recommend uh, that you join if you're a new student, for example, or you just recently joined or, or you're a, a long time QP student, but you just haven't really um, joined the, the, the Telegram groups where as a, uh, you know, just generally we're trying to send out less and less emails and bombard people with less and less information in terms of emails and make a lot of our primary communication through um, through Telegram. And so that's where you can get all of the latest information if there's developments, as well as stuff like, you know, the, on the chat groups, they have quizzes and they have other stuff as well, which kind of just generally helps you with your revision of uh, what we're studying. So, um, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to begin with the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl today, um, ta'ala. So where we finished off last year, before Ramadan, before we broke for Ramadan, is we finished at the end of QP year 3 from Surah Al-Duha. So for those of you that are new, that you're just joining, Essentially what we've done so far in terms of the tafsir of the Qur'an is that we started with a, an introduction to, in the isti'adh and the basmala and then we started from reverse order. So we started from Surah An-Nas and we're working our way backwards uh, throughout the Qur'an. So essentially we're beginning with what are called the Qisar al-Mufassal, the shortest surahs of the Qur'an. Smallest surahs of the Qur'an and we're working our way backwards. And where we've reached so far is Surah Al-Layl. So we've essentially finished after three years the Qisar al-Mufassal. The Qisar al-Mufassal, we finished over the three years, and inshallah ta'ala now, we're going into what would be called the Awsat al-Mufassal, which is all of the surahs from Surah Al-Layl uh, up, to, uh, up to the end of Juz'amma, uh, Surah Al-Naba, or the beginning of Juz'amma, Surah Al-Naba. So that's essentially, inshallah ta'ala, what we are going to begin with now, and inshallah, I hope that that's something which we can also complete, inshallah ta'ala. So... Um, for those of you that were also following us through Ramadan, we, we started with the tafsir of, of Sa'di. Uh, those lessons, for those of you that want to watch them, uh, they were, I believe, two-hour lessons this year. Uh, every day we did throughout the month of Ramadan, and we more or less finished. Uh, we got up to, like, I think I think we finished Surah Al-Anfal, so we more or less did uh, 10 juz, just under 10 juz, so just under kind of like a third of the Qur'an from tafsir of Sa'di. That's available at the Green Lane Masjid YouTube channel, so if you scroll back towards like Ramadan, you'll find that every single day and that's something which you can also follow upon if that's something which uh, which interests you. Um, and uh, in addition to the Tafsir Jalalin that we did last year. So inshallah ta'ala, the idea with that is that next year we continue from where we left off. So where we finish this year with Tafsir Sa'di, next year we will inshallah ta'ala continue with that. And then where we finish off next year, then the following year we will inshallah ta'ala continue from there. Okay, so let's begin, inshallah ta'ala, with the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl. So Surah Al-Layl is uh, literally meaning the Surah of the Night. Uh, and it has a number of names by which it is known by. Three that you will find in the books of Tafsir and Ulum Al-Quran and Hadith. The first of them is the most famous name for this Surah, and that is Surah Al-Layl. And Surah Al-Layl is the name that is mentioned in, in perhaps the majority or many of the, of the books of Tafsir and Hadith and Ulum Al-Quran, Quranic Sciences. And it's mentioned, for example, by Al-Farra, and Ibn Qutayba, and Al-Nasai, and Ibn Abi Hatim, Ibn Atiyah, Ibn Al-Jawzi, Ibn Kathir, Al-Suyuti, Al-Shawkani, to name just a few of the scholars with Tafsir and Quran who uh, who spent, uh, who, who referred to the Surah, Surah Al-Layl. 
The second name by which it is known is Surah Wal-Layl. So with the wow at the beginning, right? So Surah Wal-Layl. And as we mentioned last year, and we've mentioned this a few times because there may be some new people joining us for QPO4. Uh, the names of the surahs, as we said before, are of different types. You have names of the surahs of the Quran that were given, named by the Prophet wasallam. So he gave them names and they're mentioned in narrations in the Sunnah. And so those names have stuck. So for example, if the Prophet referred to a surah as Surah Al-Fatiha, for example, or Surah Al-Baqarah, or Surah Al-Imran, or uh, you know, Surah Al-Falaq, Surah Al-Nas, Surah Al-Ikhlas, these are names that you will find within, <coughs> within narrations. And so those names have kind of stuck, even though those surahs don't necessarily only have one name. There are other names by which they are also known, but they are names also that we have from the Sunnah in a number of hadith. Then what you have is names of surahs because they're not mentioned in a hadith. So where you have names for them, then they come from either from the companions or from the scholars of the tabi'een. And that's what you find that there are sometimes multiple names for a single surah. One of the most common ways, as we mentioned last year also, for a surah to be named was to use either the complete first verse or a portion of the first verse. And so that's essentially what's happening here. So surah to layl is the name that this surah is well known by. Then you have Surah Wal-Layl, which is the opening part of the first verse. And that is the way that it was referred to by Abdullah ibn Mubarak, ta'ala, the famous scholar of hadith. And then we have the third name, which is essentially the first verse. Surah Wal-Layl Ida Yagsha. Surah Wal-Layl Ida Yagsha. And that's the name that you will find in a number of the books of hadith. So in the uh, in Sahih al-Bukhari, in Jami' al-Tirmidhi, in the Mustadrak of Imam al-Hakim, that's the name that this surah is referred to, Wal-Layli Ida Yagsha. And then it also is mentioned that way in some of the uh, books of tafsir, such as the tafsir of Abdul Razak and tafsir al-Tabari. Tafsir al-Tabari refers to this surah also as surah to Wal-Layli Ida Yagsha. And perhaps one of the reasons uh, for that is, or, or that you find this in the books of hadith essentially, is because there is a narration in that famous hadith, which I'm sure many of us are familiar with and aware of, we've come across it before, the hadith of Mu'adh radiallahu anhu, when he would pray Isha with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in his masjid, and then he would go to Quba, which is where Mu'adh radiallahu anhu lived, and where his people were from. He would travel back to Quba, and then he would lead them in Salatul Isha. So he would pray the first time with the Prophet sallallahu behind the Prophet sallallahu in Masjid al-Nabawi, and then he's going back to his people in Quba, and he's praying with them as the Imam. Right, which is one of the evidences that the scholars use that it's allowed for a person who uh, to pray more than once, right? To pray the same salah more than once and to lead people even if for that person it is a sunnah. Because when Mu'adh radiallahu anhu is leading his people, he's already prayed Isha. So he's not praying with the intention of it being a fard prayer. He's praying with an intention of it being a nafal prayer for him. But for the people behind him, it is still the fard prayer. And that's one of the evidences used by those scholars who allow this and that is a stronger opinion Allah Azza wa knows best but the point here being that that famous story and Mu'adh radiallahu an on this particular occasion he lengthens the prayer and he makes the prayer long and Mu'adh radiallahu an is already leading the people in Quba at a late time because he's praying with the Prophet Isha at that time then he's taking time getting back to Quba then he's leading his people and he's lengthening the prayer so one of the people behind who was praying behind him when he began to lengthen the prayer, he started reading from like Baqarah or, or one of the longest surahs, he left. He broke his prayer and he left. And he left because he had to be up in the morning, he had work, he had jobs, he had responsibilities, and he had to go to sleep, he had, he had to get to bed. Some of the companions 
uh, commented on this and he said that this man must be a munafiq, he must be a hypocrite to leave and break off the prayer in that way. That man went and he complained to the Prophet about Mu'adh and the way that he lengthens the prayer. And the Prophet calls Mu'adh and in some of the narrations he says to him, anta ya Are you someone who's causing a trial for people? Don't be a trial and a test for them because behind you are those people who are elderly and weak and sick and people who have jobs and responsibilities. You can't make your salah like Baqarah every single time. You don't know how the situation of the people behind you is. In some of those narrations, the Prophet said to him, rather what you should be leading the people with in Salatul Isha is surahs like Sabbihisma Rabbika La'la and Washamsi Waduhaha. Right? And that's the famous narrations. In some of those wordings, the Prophet it is said also added Walayli Ida Yaksha. So he said, read lead them with Sabbihisma Rabbika La'la, Washamsi Waduhaha and Walayli Ida Yaksha. And you refer to these surahs with their full verses, right? With the opening verse. So that's why it was a very common thing even amongst the time or in the time of the Prophet ﷺ to refer to verses with either a portion of the opening verse or all of its, or the complete opening verse. But anyway, the point being that these are the three names by which this surah is known and in particular uh, Surah Layla is something which is very common. So that's the one that like you will find now in most mushafs, in most Qur'ans. That's the name by which this surah and in most works now, contemporary works, it is referred to as Surah Al-Layl. In terms of its place of revelation or time of revelation, is it a Makki surah or a Madani surah? There is a difference of opinion. The majority of the scholars are of the position that it is a Makki surah, but there is a difference of opinion. Ibn al-Jawzi in his tafsir, he said that it is a Makki surah by ijma' by consensus. But it's not by consensus because there are a number of scholars who differed with that point. And the majority of scholars, however, didn't really mention the difference of opinion. They just said simply that it is a Mecki position. There is a difference between a scholar who says that it is a Mecki surah by ijma' because the word ijma' means by consensus or agreement, more or less, of all of the scholars or the vast majority of the scholars. Some of the scholars use the word ijma' to refer to the overwhelming majority, even though they know that there are scholars who differ with that position, but they consider them to be you know, the oddity, the, the, you know, the odd one or two that they don't really consider, they don't really count. They don't think that that breaks the ijma' of the majority or the overwhelming majority. There is a difference between someone who says that it is Makki or Madani by ijma' as opposed to someone who simply says it is a Makki surah. The scholar who says that it is a Makki surah is giving you the stronger position, the position that he has chosen, that the surah is a Makki surah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a difference of opinion. So for example, Ibn Kathir ta'ala often will say, you know, it's a Makki surah. But then when you go back to other books of tafsir, like Al-Qurtubi, like Ibn Atiyah, like uh, Ibn Ashur, for example, and others, you find actually, no, there's more than one position. Ibn Kathir ta'ala doesn't often go into those differences. He's just telling you the position that he considers to be strongest. And so there is an important distinction between the two. Doesn't mean that Ibn Kathir doesn't know, that he's not aware, and he didn't know. No, he's just telling you that this is the stronger position in terms of what the surah is. So, those scholars who said that it is a Makki surah include Ibn Kathir and As-Suyuti and before them Al-Baghawi and before him Ibn Hazm alayhim rahmatullahi ta'ala. And so those are the scholars who said that it is a Makki surah. However, there are scholars who said that it is a Madani surah. And this is what, what is mentioned by Ibn Ashur. And even though Ibn Ashur and Ibn Atiyah and others who, who mentioned the difference of opinion, I think that the vast majority of them are still leaning towards it being a Makki surah. But they essentially saying though there is some difference of opinion. 
Ibn Ashur says that it is the majority of the majority opinion that it is a Mecki surah. And in fact, the majority of the scholars of tafsir, he said, didn't even mention the difference of opinion. They just simply said it is Mecki. However, there is a difference of opinion, as mentioned by a Suyuti. And remember, Suyuti is one of the scholars who said that it is a Mecki surah. That's what he mentions in his tafsir. But if you go back to his book in Ulum al-Quran, which is Al-Itqan, he mentions the difference of opinion there. And that's also something very important when you study the works of scholars to understand the methodology of each work. And so a Suyuti sometimes doesn't go into a lot of detail in his tafsir, but he will go into more detail in his book in Ulum al-Quran, in the sciences of the Quran. So uh, a Suyuti mentions this Ibn Atiyah as well. Ibn Atiyah says, and he narrates from Al-Mahdawi, that it is a Madani Surah. Right, Al-Mahdawi, uh, and this is something which is also important just as a, as a methodology of, of studying any science, but especially tafsir or hadith or something. When you come across a name of a scholar, like Ibn Atiyah, now is a famous scholar of tafsir and it's someone that we quote from very often. When Ibn Atiyah quotes from another scholar, like in this case Al-Mahdawi, and Al-Mahdawi I think for many of us is probably a name that we've never come across before in tafsir. Who is Al-Mahdawi? His name was Abu Abbas Al-Mahdawi. Uh, and he died around the year 450 of the Hijrah. Uh, Al-Mahdawi, when you come a name, across a name uh, like that, it's something which you should research, look into, right? You want to know who is this scholar that other scholars are, conf- are, are referring to and, and quoting from. Someone like Ibn Atiyah, for him to quote from someone like Al-Mahdawi, right? Or if it's Al-Qurtubi and he's quoting from someone regularly, or if it's, for example, I don't know, uh, Ibn Kathir and he's often referring to someone, it shows to you that this person is something, someone that they consider to be a senior scholar in this particular regard. Al-Mahdawi is, is from the scholars, as Ibn Atiyah and others were, from the scholars of northern Africa, from Andalus, right? Andalus and the area and region which is southern Spain and then stretching towards North Africa. Uh, Al-Mahdawi was from the famous scholars of Qiraat and he also has a book in Tafsir. He has a book in Tafsir. And Ibn Atiyah, in his uh, introduction to his Tafsir, when he speaks about the different levels of the scholars of tafsir, you know, the highest level is the level of the companions, and then after the second level is the level of the of the students of the companions and their students, and he basically grades the different levels of scholars of tafsir. The third level, which he considers to also be a very high level, he mentions the likes of al-Mahdawi, and he's someone that he benefited from anyway. So al-Mahdawi is someone who mentions this as well. Ibn Ashur says that the reason for the difference of opinion between a why this surah is Makki or Madani, Essentially refers to those verses that inshallah ta'ala we're going to come on to either today or, or next week inshallah ta'ala when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says towards you know around verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 when Allah says that, position, that portion of verses that Allah says and as for the one who spends and has piety and they are truthful uh, or they attest to the truthfulness of al-husna then you will make easy for them their path. And as for the one who was stingy and miserly, those verses as they go on, the scholars differed as to who it's referring to. Those scholars that said that it's referring to the likes of Abu Bakr an and others said that it is a Makki surah. And that the incident, as we will mention, refers particularly to Abu Bakr an and his time in, in Mecca, the Meccan period. Therefore, the surah becomes a Makki surah. And others from amongst the scholars of Tafsir were of the position that those verses refer to a companion from the companions of the Ansar in Medina by the name of Abu Dahdah radiyallahu And Abu Dahdah, his story is also well known and famous inshallah when we come to it here. It's something which I think many of us have, have heard and come across. 
Abu Dahda his story is famous with the point being here that he's from the companions of the Ansar which therefore means that the incident takes place in the Medinan period and therefore the story of the surah becomes becomes a Madani surah right? and that is essentially the difference of opinion the vast majority of the scholars seem to have taken the position that this surah is referring to the likes of Abu Bakr radiallahu anh, and therefore it is a Makki surah but you will find that difference of opinion in some of the books and from the early scholars who mention that difference of opinion are the likes of Abdul Razak in his tafsir and Ali ibn Abi Talha right? Ali uh, ibn Abi Talha uh, ta'ala, was from the students of the students this is another name which you will come across if you read Tabari or any of those early books of tafsir Abdul Razak the very early compilations of tafsir a very common name that you will find is this particular scholar Ali ibn Abi Talha Ali ibn Abi Talha uh, his father was, I think it was his father anyway, or his grandfather, one of them, uh, was the slave of Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet وسلم, and he was freed by him. And so they have their wala, they have their, you know, their kind of like loyalty attached to the family of the Prophet right? So essentially what happens is if someone has a slave and they free them, that person becomes a free slave, but the loyalty that they have, re- they retain that loyalty, meaning that if they were, if there was ever to be uh, something which they needed to help someone or whatever, their loyalty, their family loyalty, goes back to the people who freed them. That is called Mawla, right? in Arabic, or it is called Al-Wala. So Ali ibn Abi Talha, his father, or I think it was his grandfather, one of them, they were freed by Al-Abbas radiallahu anhu. And so his uh, loyalty, therefore, goes to the family of the Prophet to Banu Hashim, right? which is the tribe and the clan of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Ali ibn Abi Talha himself, was from the students of the students of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma. So Ali ibn Abi Talha, his teachers are the likes of Mujahid and Ata and Sa'id ibn Jubair rahimahumullah and all of those three as well as others are from the, the, the very senior major students of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma. And Ali ibn Abi Talha was one of the first to write down the tafsir of Ibn Abbas. So even though between him and Ibn Abbas there is a, a, a level or a or generation, which is basically his teachers, but he, he wrote it down. He wrote the tafsir of Ibn Abbas down. Uh, and it's not a long tafsir. It's not a, in fact, it's not a very long tafsir. And I think the original tafsir isn't something which we have in its original form. But recently there was one of the scholars who basically went through the works of At-Tabari and Bukhari and, and all of these different books of, of tafsir and hadith. And he, they essentially extracted all of the narrations of Ali ibn Abi Talha and they put them together. So Ali ibn Abi Talha, often narrates from Ibn Abbas. So many of the narrations of Ibn Abbas, for example, Imam al-Bukhari in his Sahih, often quotes in tafsir from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum. It is said that his narrations that he takes from Ibn Abbas come from Ali ibn Abi Talha, rahimahullah. Al-Tabari does the same, and Abdul Razak does the same, and many of the early scholars of tafsir, when it came to the narrations of Ibn Abbas, they considered to be one of the most authentic and strongest chains to him to be the scholar Ali ibn Abi Talha. And this is a very interesting, like it's a complete tangent to what we're doing, but it's a very interesting thing to look into, like how the early scholars used to do this. And what we often do now is we read these names and we don't, even though it's a very repetitive name, a name that you will come across many times in those works, you just kind of pass along. But you don't realize that this person was someone who was so important that the likes of Imam Bukhari and others, and we know how stringent Imam Bukhari was when it came to authenticity and trustworthiness and precision, precision of narrating and so on, all of those issues of hadith. He chose Ali ibn Abi Talha to be one of the main people in, from whom he would take the tafsir of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. And there's a famous statement of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam Ahmad is from 
you know, the earlier generation than Imam al-Bukhari. Imam al-Bukhari is, is much later than Imam Ahmad. Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, or not much later, but he's, he's from a, a, below, a lower generation. Uh, Imam uh, Ahmad, rahimahullah ta'ala, has a famous statement in which he said that there is a, uh, a manuscript containing the tafsir of Ali ibn Abi Talha, of Ibn Abbas, all the way in Egypt. And I think that if someone was to travel from, he was in Baghdad, in Iraq, if someone was to travel from here to Egypt in order to go and find that manuscript and read it and benefit from it, then it wouldn't be a wasted trip. It's not something which would be too much to do. And so he was someone from the early scholars who used to praise the tafsir of Ali ibn Abi Talha. And Ali ibn Abi Talha is not his tafsir, it's his tafsir that he writes from his teacher's teacher, who is Abdullah ibn Abbas, So Ali ibn Abi Talha also has a narration, by the way, that says that it is a uh, Madani surah. So that kind of brings us on then to the cause of revelation. And it's not the cause of revelation for the whole uh, surah, but those particular verses that inshallah ta'ala we will come on to. And essentially they come back to two, two main stories. The first of them is the story that you will find, for example, in the, in the likes of the tafsir of Ibn Abi Hatim and others. Uh, and, and it is something which uh, many of the scholars consider to be a, a weak narration in this form, a weak narration in this form. Uh, in, in the form that it's narrated in terms of it being a cause of revelation. The story of, uh, actually let's go through the story and then we'll speak about it. And this narration in Nabi Ibn Hatim, uh, Imam al um, Ibn Kathir ta'ala, after mentioning this in his tafsir, he said, it is gharib jiddan, right? It's a very strange narration because it's not the one that is famous in the books of the Sunnah. But anyway, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah narrates. He says that there was a man in Medina who had a farm, right? a farm of, of date palm trees. And one of his date palm trees was at the edge of his land and its branches would go into the land of his neighbor. So as the branches go into the land of his neighbor and they're full of dates, the land of the neighbor is a poor man. Right? That land belongs to a poor person. So when the, the rich man or the, the, or the owner of the farm with all of the date palm trees, when he would climb into the tree to take down the, the dates and to, and to take the harvest from the trees, dates would fall and they would fall into the garden of his neighbor. Right? It's his tree, it's his branches, it's his fruit, but some of them are overhanging. And as he's shaking the tree, some of that fruit falls into the land of his neighbor. The children of the neighbor who are poor, they would see this and they would run and they would take the dates and they would start to eat them. When the neighbor would see this, when the rich man would see this, he would come down off his tree and he would take and snatch the dates from the hands of the children. And some narrations say that if they were eating it or one of them had put the date in the mouth, he would take his finger, place it in the mouth of the child and extract the date from his mouth. The father of the, poor, the, 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 father of the children, the poor man, the neighbor, right, he's poor, when he saw this and he saw the way that his neighbor was acting toward his children, he came to the Prophet and he said, Oh Messenger of Allah, this is what happened and so on and so on. Why don't you ask him to give us that one tree? He has a whole farm of day palm trees. Give us the one tree. Right? Give us the one tree. The Prophet calls the man and he says, You know, this is this is what your neighbor is saying. He's a poor man, he's needy. You have alhamdulillah many trees. Give him this tree. Right for him, his family, his children, give him the tree. He said, Oh Messenger of Allah. I would have given it to him, were it not that this is my most favorite tree and the fruit of this tree is the most uh, delicious fruit that I have, meaning the dates are the most amazing. So 
he said, give him the tree and in return you will have a tree in Jannah. This is what the Prophet said to him. And the man refuses. Another companion is listening and overhearing this conversation. After that man leaves, he comes to the Prophet and says, O oh, Messenger of Allah, if I were to take the tree and give it to them, do I get the same reward? Or is that reward only special, specific for him? The Prophet said, no, it's for anyone who does it. So the man goes, this other companion now who's come into the story, he goes to the man who owns the farm and he says to him, why don't you sell that tree for me? He says the same thing. He says that tree is my most favorite, favorite tree. Its fruit is the most delicious fruit to me and it's not something which I'm willing to sell. He says to him that I will give to you, make it worth your while. So he says, what's worth my while? He says to him, I will give you 40 trees, date palm trees, for the one. So the man says, you're willing to give me 40 trees for the one? He says, yes. He says, okay, but I want you to have witnesses. And the story goes, it's a, it's a long narration, but essentially he gives him 40 trees and, and some extra stuff in order to buy that one tree. And he takes the one tree and he... It's his now, it's, it belongs to him. And he comes back to the Prophet وسلم, and he says, O oh, Messenger of Allah, I took the tree. Right? I took the tree and I'm willing to give it to, uh, I'm willing to give it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to that poor man. The Prophet وسلم, says to him, you will have its like in Jannah. Right? You will have its like or, or you know, a, a tree in its place in Jannah. And that's the narration that's being referred to here. And that's where, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then revealed these verses right? and in this narration uh, Ibn Abbas says that the whole surah was revealed concerning this he says from the beginning to the end was revealed concerning this man so that's the first narration as we said Ibn Kathir and others said that it's, it's, it's something which is a gharib narration right? it's a strange narration and that's because the narration is very similar to a narration that is the well-known narration of Abu Dahdah but this in this particular narration of Ibn Abi Hatim the, no one's named right no one's name is mentioned and Abu Dahdah isn't mentioned Abu Dahdah his story which will come on to when we come on to the tafsir of those verses uh, is mentioned in Sahih Muslim right so that's like a, and the Muslim Ibn Muhammad and, and many other of the famous narrations that's something which is which is a well-known narration but that particular narration of Abu, uh, Abu Dahdah doesn't mention the revelation of these verses so you see you have two issues here you have the one issue which is this narration which is a a, a long narration but it, it mentions the narration of the verses or the revelation of the verses but not something which is overly accepted by many of the scholars of tafsir they consider it obviously to be the weaker of the two narrations regarding this surah and then you have the more famous narration which is the authentic one of Abu Dahdah radiyallahu an but it doesn't necessarily mention anything to do with this surah the second narration for the cause of revelation is the story of Abu Bakr radiallahu an, and that's mentioned by Tabari and others in the books of Tafsir, and it's the narration of Amir ibn Abdullah ibn Zubair, rahimahullah taala. Abdullah ibn Zubair, as we know, is a famous companion. His father is Zubair ibn Awwam, radiallahu anhuma, and Zubair is the first cousin of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Amir is the son of Abdullah ibn Zubair, so he's the grandson of Zubair ibn Awwam, radiallahu anhum jamian. So Amir, and he was a well-known scholar. Amir was a scholar of, of, of in his own right. He inherited from his father and studied with him. And he died around the middle of the second century of Islam. Amir ibn Abdullah, he says that this, these verses were revealed concerning Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is who to Amir? He is Amir's uh, great-grandfather, right? Because Zubair's wife is Asma. 
bint Abi Bakr radiallahu anha, and her father is Abu Bakr. So he is his great-grandfather. He says that it's these verses were revealed concerning Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu in the Meccan period, as we know, would buy slaves and he would free them for the sake of Allah because they were Muslims. The most famous example of that being Bilal radiallahu anhu. So when those slaves would become Muslims and they were being tortured and persecuted by their masters and by the people of Mecca, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would come, he would buy them, he would purchase them, and he would free them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he did with Bilal radiallahu anhu. The narration says that as he was doing this, his father, who was Abu Quhafa, and Abu Quhafa, the father of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and uh, radiallahu anhu, and uh, Abu Quhafa, because Abu, Abu Quhafa, as we know, later on becomes a Muslim. He's from the very, uh, you know, from the very late people to accept Islam. Uh, and he's unique in the sense that there were not many major senior companions whose fathers accepted Islam. Uh, and I think, if memory serves me correctly, he's probably one of the few from the, uh, especially from the Ashram Mubashar and from that generation whose parents became Muslim. Abu Quhafa accepts Islam after the, after the conquest of Mecca, so very late towards the life, end of the life of the Prophet wasallam, And he's the one who was extremely old. And he's the one that came to the Prophet ﷺ and he's like, you know, walking very, very slow because he's extremely old by that time. Uh, and, Abu, and the Prophet ﷺ said to Abu Bakr, had you not told me, and I would have gone to him. Right? And he's the one who, uh, who the Prophet ﷺ said about him when he came at the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ looked at him and he was, his hair had gone obviously white, he's extremely old. And he said, change his white hair and stay away from black dye. Right? That's the famous hadith. And that's a different issue anyway. But the point is that he's the one that's being referred to. So Abu Quhafa eventually becomes a Muslim. But for many years, obviously, he's not a Muslim. And he's someone who doesn't like Islam. And so when Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu would go and he would buy these slaves and he would free them, he said to his son, why don't you buy, if you're going to buy slaves and free them, buy strong slaves, right? Buy slaves that are strong, physically strong, can actually help you, can benefit you, can, can give you something. You're buying women, you're buying children, you're buying people who don't have anything to offer you. Because, like we said before, is when you free a slave, their loyalty goes to you. So if you need them for help, especially in times of, in the Arab times before Islam, in times of war, in times of fighting, in times of civil strife, these are the people that you can also depend upon alongside you and your family. So if you're going to buy them, he's saying to his son, at least buy the ones that can help you. Buying women and children won't really help you because you freed them anyway. They're not even yours. And when time comes for someone to step up, they won't be able to help you. And so... Abu Bakr said to him, I don't buy them for that. I buy them and, and free them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah because of this revealed these verses says that some of my family members, most likely his father and others from his uncles and so on, they told me that these verses were revealed concerning my great-grandfather Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Those are the two famous stories that we have concerning the revelation of these verses. You have that one story, which those scholars who accepted that story said, therefore, that the surah is madani, either in its totality or part of it is madani anyway. At least those verses uh, are madani. And other scholars who said, no, that it's referring to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and therefore the story is, is Makki. And the majority of the scholars of, the, of, of Islam or, or of tafsir uh, are of the position that it is a Makki surah. Right? And if it's referring to anyone, then it's referring to Abu Bakr And clearly when we say that this story is about Abu Bakr it doesn't mean that the verses are specific to him. Right? So as we've said before, uh, you know, the causes of revelation 
don't restrict the meaning of the verse, meaning that it doesn't just apply to Abu Bakr radiallahu an, but the verses retain their general meaning. Right? In the vast majority of cases, they are general for everyone. So when Allah says anyone who spends and anyone who fears Allah and anyone who testifies to the truth and so on, they will have ease and Allah will facilitate ease for them. That refers to every Muslim and every believer who has those attributes and follows in those footsteps. So it's not something which then becomes specific only to, uh, to Abu Bakr radiallahu an. But this is something which is mentioned by way of it being a cause of revelation only, not in terms of its rulings being restricted to one party as opposed to another. And that's why you often find that the teacher of our teacher, Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir, will often uh, speak about cause of revelation and then he will say, but it's not restricted in meaning. And he doesn't like it because some people try to restrict the meaning. And so he says either way, whether it is or it's not, it's not important in the sense of its application, its rulings, its benefits, and the way that we understand those verses of the Qur'an. And Allah Azza wa knows best. So those are the two main issues or the, the two main narrations that you have regarding the cause of revelation for Surah Al-Layl. So let us begin inshallah ta'ala. <clears throat> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanir rajeem Bismillahir rahmanir rahim Wal-layli idha yagusha Wal-nahari idha tajalla وَمَا خَلَقَ الذَّكَرَ وَالْأُنْثَىٰ إِنَّ سَعْيَكُمْ لَشَتَّىٰ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins in verse number one and he says وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَىٰ By the enshrouding night and so this is, you know, as we've mentioned previously uh, over the, uh, the, the past few years when we've come across some surahs like this uh, especially surah al-duha in fact, uh, this may be only the second surah I think that we have come through that begins with uh, with uh, and surah al-teen so maybe the third surah that begins with an oath that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often begins a number of surahs in the Quran by taking oaths and when Allah takes oaths by something it is to show the importance of that thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by as Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said Qatada said that if Allah takes an oath by something it is to show its significance and to show its importance. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the night. And I think we mentioned last year when we were speaking, for those of you that remember at Surah Al-Duha, that one of the things that Allah Azza wa takes uh, an oath by in a number of places in the Quran is by time. So Allah Azza wa takes an oath by time in Surah Al-Asr. And then Allah Azza wa takes an oath by different parts or different times of the day and the night. So you have Wal-Layl, you have Wal-Duha, you have Wal Fajr, right? You have all of those different times of the day and the night that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then specifies and He takes an oath by to show to you its importance. So Allah Azza doesn't just take an oath by time in general, but then Allah Azza would take an oath by certain parts of the day and the night and certain times that Allah Azza is referring to as well. And even Al Asr, as we mentioned when we did the tafsir, remember that we said that some of the scholars were of the position that actually Al Asr doesn't refer to the time in general, doesn't refer to all of time. But many of the scholars were of the position, and it is a strong opinion, that the, that the, that actually al-asr is referring to the time of day of al-asr. So that time of day when we replace salat al-asr, that is the time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by. And that is has its strength, because we know from a number of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that it's a time that is considered to be a, 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 a an auspicious time. Right? That's the time that the angels go up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the actions of the day, Right, and then the angels of the night are coming down at the same time. 
that's the time where you know it's the time that you should make your evening as kar. We know, for example, the Salat al Asr in the position of, of the majority of the scholars is Salat al Wusta, the one that Allah mentions in the Quran, preserve your prayers, and especially the middle prayer being Salat al Asr in the position of many of the scholars as well. And there are even hadith which the you know which we which we mentioned when we did the tafsir of when the Prophet uh, used to say or some narrations that say that that if someone was going to take an oath for certain things they should do it after Salatul Asr. Right, that is the position of a number of scholars because that time of Asr is something which even the Arabs who said uh, before Islam, pre-Islam, understood its importance. That time of day was something which they considered to be extremely important. Anyway, the point being that Allah takes an oath by a number of parts of the day and the night. Ibn Abbas said, And by the night when it enshrouds, or the enshrouding light. And he said the meaning of yagsha is when darkness covers the day. Right. So that's what essentially is referring to. Yagsha meaning the darkness of the night. When, when the darkness of the night comes in. And Sa'id ibn Jubair, Rahimahullah Ta'ala said something very similar. He said, When the night enters and it covers everything before it. And that is what Imam Al-Tabari Rahimahullah Ta'ala also said in his tafsir. He said that Allah Azza takes an oath by the night that comes and it takes over all of the daylight and it removes the light of the day and with it comes the darkness of the night. And as the judge said something very similar, he said that the night comes and everything in the horizon becomes dark. Everything upon the horizon becomes dark. And Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, said something also very similar. When the night comes and enters, and all of creation is covered by its darkness. So remember, we're talking about a time, especially in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, where you don't have artificial lighting. right? So now, you know, like in, especially if you live in the middle of central London, or you're in New York, or in Hong Kong, or one of those places, even the night seems like it's day, right? Because there's so much artificial lighting, not only lamp, posts and uh, sorry uh, street lighting but building lighting and and then indoor lighting and so lighting is very different but remember in in and even till now in certain villages in certain places everything becomes dark there's no street lights right so when maghrib comes in and after isha when night settles then it's something which is extremely dark so you have moonlight or the very uh, very small lights of, of of the night that you have the natural light of the night and you may have the odd candle burning here or or some kind of fire being lit there. But generally speaking, it is extremely dark. And so that's what they're referring to, that when the night comes in, Allah is saying, it covers everything, and everything becomes dark. In verse number two, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes another oath. And he says, tajalla, And by the radiant day, tajalla, By the radiant day. And Imam Al-Tabari says, and this is also another oath, but this time it is the opposite of the first. So Allah Azza takes an oath by the night, and then he takes an oath by the day. And he takes an oath by the night, uh, the day, and the light that it brings. Because the light of the day allows eyes to see that which the night hid from them. So when the light of the day comes, it allows you to see that which the night hid from your eyes. And so that's something which Allah Azza then takes an oath by as well. Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said, Allah says, He takes an oath by the day and by the night, and these are two of the greatest signs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to His creation. The night and the day, and the way that one follows the other, and the way that they alternate the day and the night, it is something which Allah refers to in a number of places in the Quran, like for example, towards the end of Surah Al Imran, 
واختلاف الليل والنهار لآيات لأولي الألباب Indeed, in the creation of the heavens and the earth and the alternation of the day and the night are signs for the people of understanding. And so Ibn Kathir says that just as Allah as Allah took an oath by the night and its darkness, then Allah also takes an oath by the day and by its light. And this surah, you know, some of the scholars said, is very close to the surah that will come next, that inshallah we will do after the surah, which is surah al-shams. Because in surah al-shams, we have the... The the so we have, in this surah we have the day and the night in surah al-shams we have the two creations of Allah that make the day and the night which is basically the sun and the moon shamsi and in this surah Allah begins by the night he begins by taking an oath by the darkness and in surah al-shams he begins by taking an oath by the day and some of the scholars said the reason for that is to show that actually both are times of goodness right just as both are times in which people can do evil. Sometimes we think that the night is a time of evil. And yes, there is no doubt that it is a time where more evil occurs and that it is a time when people have to be more careful. But it is also a time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed in its own way because many of the ibadat, especially the nawafil, that are most beloved to Allah Azza wa Jal on a daily basis take place take place in the night. So that the hajjud prayer, right? Qiyamul Layl and, and Witr and making dua in the last third of the night and those types of actions and the and what we consider to be the, the Quran of the night, right? The Quran al-Fajr and the, and, and the recitation of the night, that's something which occurs during that part of the night. And that's something which Sadiq Hassan Khan ta'ala mentions. It's a very nice point because sometimes we think that it's all about the day and that Allah Azza wants us to praise him in the day and, and think about the day and that the night is something that we should stay away from. And note that there is a number of a hadith that we know in which the Prophet told us to be careful of the night and to make certain du'as of protection for the night and to withhold our children at the time of Maghrib because it's the time that the devils come out and so on. But at the same time, the night is also a time of worship. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the night just as he takes an oath by the day. In verse number three, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا خَلَقَ الذَّكَرَ وَالْأُنْثَى by the creation and by the creation of the male and the female. In this uh, particular part of the surah, I want to mention to you a narration that you will find in the books of, of hadith. Uh, and it is a famous narration. It's mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari and, and other than them as well. And it's the narration of Alqama. Alqama ibn Qais uh, al-Nakha'i is the uncle of the famous scholar Ibrahim al-Nakha'i. Ibrahim al-Nakha'i is from the famous scholars of Islam. It's probably a name that you've heard of uh, from others as well. Ibrahim al-Nakha'i. Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, his uncle, is Alqama ibn Qais al-Nakha'i. And Alqama was from the major students, from the major, major students of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu And he studied with a number of other companions as well. But ibn Mas'ud is the one that he's known for, like in terms of being a student. So Alqama says that I entered with a number of, I was traveling with a number of other companions, other students of Ibn Mas'ud, and we entered into Sham. And Abu Darda radiallahu heard about us coming. So he came to us and he said, is there amongst you the one who can read Quran? Is anyone amongst you who is well-versed in Quran? So it doesn't mean can you just read Quran, it means well-versed in Quran. They said yes. So he said, who from amongst you is most well-versed, meaning the one that has memorized it best and knows it best and can recite it best? So Al-Qama says, they all pointed towards me. So he said to me, read for me Surah Wal-Layli Ida Yagsha. So he said, I read it. And I read it the way that I heard from Ibn Mas'ud. He said, Wal-Layli Ida Yagsha, Wal-Nahari Ida Tajalla, Wal-Dhakari Wal-Untha. Right? And so what's missing here? 
in the third verse, وَمَا خَلَقَ الذَّكَرَ وَالْأُنْثَى He said, وَالذَّكَرِ وَالْأُنْثَى So Abu Darda, rahimahullah ta'ala, an, said to me, did you hear it this way from the mouth of your teacher, meaning Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiyallahu an? So I said, yes, that's how I heard him read it. Abu Darda said, and that is how I also heard it from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but these people here, meaning the ones in the Sham, say to me that I should read it, وَمَا خَلَقَ الذَّكَرَ وَالْأُنْثَى this narration, and you will find many of these narrations, if you're someone who reads the books of tafsir, like the, the early works of tafsir especially, and even the books of hadith, because this is a narration in Sahih Bukhari, is something which you will come across. And we know that the companions at the time of the Prophet ﷺ had differences in, in the way that they read the Qur'an. right? And this can be something which is a very, uh, a very confusing issue and topic. But remember that the Prophet ﷺ, uh, when he's reading the Qur'an and teaching the Qur'an to the companions, He's teaching them in what we call the ahruf, right? in, in ways that are easy for them to read. The Prophet ﷺ then in the end of his life, when Jibreel ﷺ came to him in the final Ramadan and he revised the Qur'an with him twice, the Prophet ﷺ settled on what was a reading. Right? And that is the reading then that Abu Bakr based the Qur'an upon when he gathered the Qur'an and compiled it, and that Uthman did the same when he compiled it in his time, and that's the one that he sent then to the different parts of the Muslim world. For the companions who heard it from the Prophet ﷺ, and maybe they didn't hear the final version, or maybe they were the ones who, who, who thought that that's, that's the way that it should be read, for them that is the Qur'an that they knew because they learned it from the Prophet ﷺ. But the Qur'an then that comes to Uthman an, or the one that comes in the time of Abu Bakr an before him, it is essentially the Qur'an that the, the scholars and the Ummah have ijma' upon. And so you will find, uh, you will find, as Ibn Hajj Ta'ala mentions this in his, in, his, in his explanation of Sahih Bukhari, you will find that the companions sometimes had differences in the way that they would read, but that those differences are abrogated. Right? And they're abrogated by the ijma' of the ummah. So even if there's a difference of opinion in the time of the companions, there's no difference of opinion that then stays after their students or even after those students pass away and the next generation. And that's what Ibn Hajr says, that despite Abu Darda, and Abu Darda was the one who would teach Qur'an in Asham. So Abu Darda isn't just someone who's traveling, Abu Darda is someone who would actually teach the Qur'an. Right? So Ibn Amir, as we mentioned when we did our special Qira'at, Ibn Amir, who's one of the ten Qur'a'a, Ibn Amir's Qira'a comes from Abu Darda radiallahu and a number of other qira'at we know come from Ibn Mas'ud. So for example, Hafs, right? Hafs and Asim come from Ibn Mas'ud, radiyallahu One of the companions that it comes from, it also comes from Zayd ibn Thabit and Ali, radiyallahu anhu, and others. But Ibn Mas'ud is also from amongst them. Ibn Hajar says it is amazing then that this recitation of al-wadhakari wal-untha doesn't remain after the time of Ibn Mas'ud. Right? It's not something which then continues in Abu Darda, radiyallahu anhu. And he says and the reason for that would be because it is something which the Ummah then understood that it was abrogated in terms of its recitation. That even though the Prophet ﷺ may have allowed certain companions to read that way at the beginning of Islam, it was later on abrogated. Right? And so once it's abrogated, then it's something which then becomes a what we call a qira'a shadha. Right? It becomes one of those qira'at that are shadha. And that's something which um, you know, is a long topic of discussion anyway. But it's something which pertains to here particularly because you will find it in the books of tafsir often mentioned, especially this particular narration of Alqam ibn Qais al-Naqai rahimahullah ta'ala. So Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala says that I find it something amazing that despite these two companions being very staunch on this qira'ah is something which then didn't last very long. Because Abu Darda, 
you know, his former students is Ibn Amr, the famous Qari. So we're not talking about generations afterwards, we're talking about like the next generation. So even though there are amongst them some scholars like Alqam and others who are still reading in that way, the vast majority read it in the way that it was established in terms of the Mus'haf of Uthman radiyallahu anhu warda. Al-Imam al-Tabari rahimullah ta'ala, he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا خَلَقَ الذَّكَرَ وَالْأُنْثَى He takes an oath by the creation of the male and the female. He says that the word ma, in وَمَا خَلَقَ الذَّكَرَ وَالْأُنْثَى The word ma has two meanings or can have possibly two meanings in the Arabic language. It comes with two meanings. The first is that the ma means man. The ma refers to who? Meaning the one who created the heavens and the earth. In which case that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath by himself. That Allah is taking an oath by the creator. And that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's saying, and by the one who created the male and the female. The second meaning of the ma is that it is mustariya, meaning that he's taking an oath by the creation of the have of, of the male and the female. So Allah Azza is saying, and that's the common translation that you have in, in most of the tafsirs and in the translations of this of this verse, and by the creation of the male and the female, right? By the creation of the male and the female. But both of those are correct tafsir. Because obviously that if it's referring to the creator, then that's also something which is referring to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if it's referring to the creation then clearly it is something which Allah Azza is referring to one is referring to the creator one is referring to the end product which is the creation and both of them are very closely linked as we know Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala he says in the tafsir of this verse he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by male and female because every single animal that is upon the face of the planet has a male and a female and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this rather than saying by the humans, right, or by the man and the woman, because that then restricts it to just humans. Allah says male and female, so that it includes the birds and it includes the animals and it includes the fish and it includes everything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created in that way. And so Allah has made them male and female. So then Ibn Qayyim ta'ala says that it is a sign from Allah's power and it is a sign of his lordship and his creation, subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah made just as he created or alternation or he created opposites in terms of the day and the night and the sun and the moon that Allah also created opposites in terms of the creation of the male and the female and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created them to show that there is differences right that there are different ways that you can do things that there are different paths that people can take because in the next verse which we don't have time to go into today but the next verse will be in that you're different that you're the ways that you take differ so just as there is a difference between the sun and the moon, a difference between the day and the night, a difference between male and female, then likewise there is a difference between righteousness and unrighteousness, between belief and between disbelief. And so some people would take one path and some people would take another path. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by these things to show his power, Jalla fi ula, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who created all of this. And just as he is the one who created all of this, then he knows also that people would take different paths. You don't have a choice in terms of the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the day and the night and the male and the female. You don't have a choice as to which one you are. But there is a choice in terms of whether you choose the path of righteousness or unrighteousness. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that there will be people who choose one and there will be people who choose another. But inshallah ta'ala that's something which we will come on to next week in tafsir number four. And then we will go on to those verses which we spoke about in terms of concerning the cause of revelation. So if there's any questions, inshallah ta'ala, for today's lesson, then inshallah ta'ala, we'll take them. 
Uh, otherwise, we can conclude with Ta'ala for today. And inshallah ta'ala, next week we will be back at the same time. Right? So we will be back at the same time, which is 8.30 UK time. Uh, what is the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala referring to himself as ma' which is usually used for uh, inanimate entities? So the word ma' can come with the meaning of men and it's actually quite common in the Arabic language. Uh, in terms of its particular like wisdom here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Allah azza wa knows best. As, uh, I, I don't know as to why Allah azza wa uses this here. But it's mentioned in a number of verses similar to it. Um, so uh, for example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالسَّمَاءِ وَمَا بَنَاهَا وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا طَحَاهَا right? That's also another verse in which some of the scholars said that actually the mahya also means men. So by the, uh, by the, by the, when Allah Azza takes an oath by the heavens and the one who created it, right? And not its creation and the one, and the two meanings are very, very similar in terms of the end result. But there is a difference in terms of mah being men and it being, um, it being mustariya. So Allahu Alam. For as in terms of the wisdom as to why Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala uses that, I don't know. Allahu Alam. Okay. There's no further questions. Inshallah Taala, we will conclude for today. So Jazakumullah Khairan for attending, and Inshallah Taala, I will see you uh, next week with Nilai Taala. Barakallahu fiikum wa sallallahu alaihi Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.